Michael Waits Media, telling Asia's stories. I feel like I should have done all my homework and listened to all your episodes and then I know about you, but I haven't. That's okay. Hi, this is Michael Waits and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today should be a great one, I think. Today I'm joined by Barbara X, the founder and CEO at Whitespace, but I feel like there's a lot more there than just that. Barbara, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. How are you doing, by the way? I'm doing great, and uh, thank you for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this. <laughs> so have I. Where are you based right now, by the way? I'm in Shanghai. Shanghai, nice. When do you think my first time was in Shanghai? Just out of curiosity. Oh, goodness. When you asked that way, it must have been early. Uh, go for late 80s? Close enough. 1991. Anyway, uh, pretty amazing. Can we get some of your background for context? And I have plenty of time, so take your time. Sure. As uh, listeners will hear from my voice, I am American, although uh, I have left the U.S. in 93, and I've spent so more than half of my life not uh, living in the U.S. So I'm, I say to people, I'm American-ish. Ish. I born and raised in Chicago, uh, school in Boston. And in uh, 93, I was working for the consulting company, Arthur D. Little. Right. And they offered me the chance to move to Cambridge, UK. And nice. that was the start of my international life. Were you one of these expatriates where they said, we've got a project we want you to work on in the UK for like a year or two, and then we'll bring you back to Boston? Or was it just like, you're never coming back to the country again? <laughs> well, those of us who, who've ended up on this expat life know that it's always nominally a two-year contract. Right. That's why I asked, of course. And, and I ended up staying in the UK for 12 years in total. Nice. And uh, again, moved to, you know, not to cut to the end, but I moved to China in 2005 on what was nominally a two-year contract. And here I still am. I love it. I did the same thing. Although my contract in Japan was not meant to be for two years, but most of the people with whom I worked that were expats, originally at Morgan Stanley, they were all there for like a six-month project or a two-year project. I was there for 22 years. And a lot of the people that I worked with were there for five, six, seven, ten years. So same thing. Very comfortable with this idea. Yeah, and everyone knows that two-year contract means as short as one year if, if you just hate it and, and it doesn't work out and the rest of your life if it does, you know. So it's just, and then sometimes people do do the two-year rotation or three, four years as an expat and then move on to the next country. So it, it can mean anything. I, I have found, and again, I'm happy to be wrong here, but I have found that if you get sent on an expatriate assignment, when you're in your early 20s, so like before your whole life is kind of settled down, the likelihood that you're going to go home, whatever that means anymore, is less likely than if you're in your mid-30s or late-30s and you have a family already. Two years, they go to school there, you bring them back, put them in private school, they go to college, and then your life just remains in the United States or wherever your home country is. Is that fair? Probably true, although certainly I've met many expats, foreigners here in China who have been on rotating three, four-year assignments yeah, uh, for 20 years and their kids go to different international schools and are um, kids, you know, multi-country kids. 
Yeah, I mean, my daughter went to international school in Japan and then graduated from an international high school in Bangkok. So I guess that fits into that category. And I've been here for mm. 10 years now. Are you, you must be a Mandarin speaker, right? I do speak Mandarin. I, I will never say fluent because I sound like an immigrant, right? I stutter. I use the wrong words. I, my accent is strange sometimes. Sometimes it's I'm fluent and it's really flowing. And, and taxi drivers mistake me for, uh, you know, if they call me, if I've arranged yeah. a pickup and they call me and then they arrive and they're surprised that I'm a Caucasian face. They think I'm either Hong Kongese right. or American born Chinese. That's like a compliment to me. That shows that my Mandarin is really quite good. And then some days I just sound like an idiot. <laughs> I know the feeling. Let me tell you one of my funniest China Hong Kong stories ever. I was double expatriated by Goldman Sachs to Hong Kong for, for a four month assignment. And in the last few days that I was there, some of my friends back in Tokyo wanted me to bring things home for them from Hong Kong. And one of the things was coming from China. And this particular item was a pink mink coat. So definitely not for me. And the person who was delivering it, which I believe it came from Shanghai, the person who was delivering it to me at my hotel in Hong Kong was only given my last name, which is W-A-I-T-Z-E. The only problem is that's a proper Chinese name, Wai Tse. Mm. <laughs> you split it in two. <laughs> so he was waiting in the hotel lobby for me for a guy who was Chinese. Mm. And when I came down, I'm like, that's my pink mink coat. It just like blew his brain up. <laughs> I'm not sure what the relevance of that is, but I just found it funny. I want to talk a little bit about your time after you arrived in China and you've been doing this type of consulting work for a long time, right? Yeah, I've spent most of my career as a consultant. And when you were at JMJ, I think you had this really interesting assignment. It must have been a fascinating job for you. This whole, <laughs> but really, because this whole idea of an American Caucasian woman going into Korea and yes. to China, but let's talk about Korea first. How did you, and I'm really curious about this, right? When you were at JMJ, you're a woman, you're a foreigner. Do you speak Korean at all? No. This is a big and really difficult task, right? Mm. And what was the strategy? Do you remember when you said to yourself, I want to get these three gigantic clients, like the shipyards. These are very traditional sort of K-ball style companies. What was your strategy when you went in? Because... Everything in Asia, in Korea and Japan and China, takes time. You have to build relationships and things like that. But particularly as a foreigner as well, I spent a ton of time in Korea when I was at Goldman Sachs just trying to build relationships with the people in our office. It was fun, but it was hard work, right? What was your own strategy for doing that? Because it worked. I'm really curious <laughs> what it was. Well, I'm laughing at the word strategy. Uh, because that implies a thoughtfulness to the plan that was not ever, uh, has never been part of my life. Um, you know, how did I end up founding Whitespace? I don't know. It just kind of happened. We'll get to that too. And indeed, my, my career in Korea just kind of happened. So the catalyst was I was living in London. This was towards the end of my 12-year sojourn in the UK. I was living in London with my Australian fiancé. And uh, he came home and said, I've been offered this 
two-year project in China. What do I do? Right. And I said, we should move to China. Yeah, why not, right? Sure. That makes sense. So I went into my boss at JMJ, the COO of the company, and I said, you know how you were talking about an Asia strategy in like 2006? Well, how about 2005? <laughs> because my fiance is moving to China, so I'm moving to China. Right. So I'm either resigning or I'm starting up the Asia branch. Up to you. I love it, yeah. And he was like, oh, you're definitely starting the Asia branch. So I flew to China. My fiance, now husband, uh, flew out to China, started the project, came back. We got married. And then we both went to China to start married life together in Dalian, the north north uh, east of China in U.S. terms. It's kind of like the main, main of China. Yeah. And uh, in 2005, which was obviously Dalian is a second tier city, very developed, but there was no Google Maps. There were no smartphones. There was no like automatic payments like I spoke no Chinese at that time, and right. we were in China. Boom. There you are. <laughs> so I flew out there. Also, you know, supposed to be starting the Asia branch, and we didn't actually have uh, any Asian projects for about the first three months. So I was sure. uh, nervously waiting for, like, what's going to happen. And then they signed a project in Korean shipyard in um, Hyundai shipyard in Ulsan, which was being paid for by the the client who was building the ships by Exxon as part of their their commitment to a high-performance team and high-performance safety culture. And so my boss was like, okay, you need to fly to Korea and you need to lead this project. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, sounds like you and I, it sounds like you and I have the same sensibility when it comes to this. I'll tell you another story in a second, but go ahead. So, yeah, it does sound like we have the same sensibility, which is if someone hands says to you, can you play the trumpet? You say, I don't know. I've never tried. Hand me one. Henry, give me the trumpet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that was completely my attitude of like, okay, let's, let's, let's go do this. And so I went to Seoul. I flew to Seoul and led a project meeting with uh, the excellent people who were expats and got their buy-in to this is how I'm going to lead the project. Right. And then because they were paying, they kind of were able to force me in a way into Hyundai. The project team had to use me. Got it. And uh, being Korean, of course, they would never be openly rude. Mostly what had happened in the past was that they would listen politely and wait for you to go away <laughs> and then go back to doing what they were going to do anyway. But I was not to be put off. And uh, I found a way to make the relationship work. Now, one of the things was um, this was a culture change, sort of organizational culture development project. Interesting. Trying to change them from that Korean command and control style into a more participatory style that encouraged people who have project suggestions or safety suggestions to be able to speak up and contribute those, which is not in line with that very traditional Korean culture. But the, the fact that I was a woman and a foreigner but that I had graduated from MIT. I yeah. have both a bachelor's and master's from MIT, and right. that was known and hugely respected in Asia. Yeah. So 
they had to respect me. And that sort of cognitive dissonance of woman, but MIT, woman, but MIT made them very off balance. And off balance is a great place to start when you're doing culture change. So it actually worked for me. And that's how it was able to expand to all of the shipyards. It's really interesting. Sorry to interrupt you, but it's this fascinating thing mm -hmm. of like, because you don't fit into their existing sort of framework and categories, do you know what I mean? Of just being this foreign woman, they're like, oh shit though, she went to MIT. What are we going to do with her kind of thing? Yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. And it's just, it just must have blown them away. They're like, darn it. Yeah. But then you, yeah. but you parlay that into like, because these shipyards, again, very, very traditional. How long did you work on those projects? Uh, oh, probably the best part of four, four or five years. I, I call myself the queen of the Korean shipyards. <laughs> Which is probably what they called you as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when you were done with that, though, right, because you have to go in at least at the beginning with a little bit of trepidation. Like, I don't know what this is going to be and I don't know how it's going to turn out. But like you said, I don't play the trumpet, but give it to me and let's see what happens because I'll figure it out. Because that's essentially what I've been doing my whole life, meaning you, right? I'll just right. I'll figure it out. And I'm not intimidated by the challenge, but I do understand that there is a challenge there. I acknowledge the fact that this could be challenging. But four years in, something inside of you must have changed as well. In other words, you must have learned some things about how to do this cultural transformation, this idea that two cultures can actually get along with each other. Like if they give a little bit on both sides, do you know what I mean? So Absolutely. My, my example of this is the guys and gals that came to Japan when I was there that said, how come they just don't use a fork and a knife? We're never going to succeed. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. One of my mantras when my husband and I moved to China and we're struggling with the culture shock of it all, and we quickly adopted the mantra, 1.4 billion of them, two of us. Right. The person who's going to change in this equation is not them. <laughs> it's not them. <laughs> <laughs> it's just math. <laughs> right. and, and it's arrogant to presume so, right? And again, it was the same thing in Japan. It's like a smaller country, but still a very long cultural history. But to me, it was less about Japan and more about understanding when you go into a new place, you have to be open-minded enough to think that you could be wrong, right? And that yeah. what's been going on there has been going on forever. But if you want to get along, there's got to be a place to meet somewhere. And I didn't say in the middle on purpose because I'm not sure it's in the middle. Yeah. I mean, what does the middle even mean? Exactly, you know, exactly. This, and, and, and does it have to be a giving up? Does it have to be a zero sum? Can't there be like a third way? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think my yeah. whole life is about understanding what that hybrid way is. I think you, point, uh, you put your finger on something that, that I experienced very succinctly, which is in that uh, four or five years working with the shipyards, and many times I was working between the Korean management of these you know, gigantic shipyards and the foreign project owners who were the international oil majors, so Chevron and uh, Shell and Exxon, right. who were sending these expat engineers who were mostly, you know, six foot tall Americans, right. guys, uh, usually from Texas. At some point, I felt like my attention shifted from coaching the Koreans 
to coaching the Americans in that is not how you manage the team to get the result that you want. Right. Did you have a lot of situations when you were there where, <laughs> what's the right, just tell those people to do this, just tell them to do this thing and you're like, I can't, that's not the way this is going to work. Do you know what I mean? On both sides. Yeah. Why can't they just do it this way? Right. Like, it's so obvious that our way is the right way. Why can they not see that? <laughs> yeah, I can't tell you how many times I was in a taxi or in a restaurant and just, because I speak Japanese like you speak Mandarin, just tell them this. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm just not doing that. That's not the right way to get this thing done. Anyway, what did you, did you actually live in Korea when you were doing that? Or were you just back and forth between Dalian? Yeah, so I was arranging two-week trips. So I would go out on a Sunday night, usually spend two full weeks, including the weekend, on site doing wow. activities with the Koreans. And then I would fly back on a Friday night or a Saturday morning and then spend a week catching up on sleep uh, and then preparing for the next trip. Next two weeks. Were there things that you brought back with you, just thought processes and maybe procedures that you brought back with you when you were done doing those projects and came back into China and then did similar style projects in China? I found that what helped me, probably the thing that, that was invaluable was the fact that I had been living in China for three or four months and my husband was leading a project in uh, PetroChina in Dalian. And so he had that experience of workplace culture and I was constantly soaking up and learning from that. And the Korea and Chinese cultures are similar in a lot of crucial ways in a way that's different than Western culture. And so I was able to take the lessons back and forth. Now, of course, they're also quite different, but there were things that I learned just from living and from hearing um, my husband's stories about uh, PetroChina that I was able to take in and understand, oh, that's that's kind of how it's going to work here too. Yeah, it's a little bit of like an unfair advantage, right? Because you have somebody on the inside. But it's such a great combination where you're working in Korea doing all this stuff. You can come home and actually talk to somebody who completely understands what you're going through, right? In a way that nobody else can. <laughs> yeah, in a way nobody else can. But in a way, you don't have to like define the terminology tell the backstory, explain how oil companies work, all these things that you'd have to for somebody who wasn't in the same industry. I don't know. I think there's a big bonus actually to having a partner who gets what you do every day. Absolutely. And and in those days when we were both consultants, you know, we'd come home and we'd be like, oh, can, you know, can you look at my PowerPoint and give me your feedback? And I'd laugh. I'd be like, oh, the couple that PowerPoints together stays together. You know? <laughs> You're laughing, but it's probably true. Tell me this feeling you had after working for what I'll call OPC, other people's companies, for years, small or large, right? What was the push or the genesis for you for starting your own business? I think we said this before we started recording, but you and I are essentially the same age, and I kind of did the same thing. So I worked for big companies my whole life, and then I just was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And I'm just curious what happened to you. Yeah, I think that although I've 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 worked the whole gamut from working f as an employee for IBM and Lenovo, these right. you know huge companies, uh, JMJ was a mid-sized consulting company when I joined. It was about two hundred people around the world, um, but that's small enough that you can kind of know everybody. Right. 
um, and then been a, a you know freelance consultant, you know, standalone with nobody on your team, um, and then done startups. So I've done every size along the spectrum. I think now that I look back, when I worked in larger companies, it was always in the context of trying to catalyze a change. Got it. So I was um, part of IBM during the dot com boom. Uh, when IBM was saying, "Oh, we're not stodgy old IBM. We're going to be, we're going to be dot com entrepreneurial innovators," uh, and and I'm sure they meant that, but they weren't able to implement it. So when the dot com boom ended, what they really wanted me to do was help them sell, you know, servers and outsourcing services, and I was not so interested in that. And that's why I left. Shocking. With JMJ, it was about <laughs> culture change. With Lenovo, it was about digital transformation. Right. But uh, that was my last foray into big companies, and and I really, it's not comfortable for me. It's it, there's nothing wrong with it, but oh. uh, I had this this moment where I was on a business trip uh, from China to Lenovo US in uh, Raleigh, Durham, and I had the rental car, and I'm driving through the Starbucks drive-through on my way into work and I've got the badge and the coffee and there's like in a briefing on employee benefits in the lunch at, at lunchtime in the in the cafeteria and I had this glimpse of like the road not taken this yeah. could have been my life if I hadn't you know taken that first international assignment this this could have been right me. It's weird right and I was like yeah no no <laughs> Yeah, I just got this a little bit of a chill. not my world. Yeah, I just got a little bit of a chill. Do you remember, like after you first moved to the UK, your family and friends that had known you forever, even some of your college classmates, like, when are you coming home? Do you remember when that stopped being asked to you? Sometimes people still ask, but now the number of people along the chain who ask, are, it's in multiple countries. So I have my British friends who... Right have asked me when I'm going to come back. Right. And then, um, you know, I think the, yeah, my American friends, because I've now been out of the States for 27 years, something like that. Yeah. Um, they know, but they do ask, uh, now people ask where I'm going to retire. Oh, I haven't had that yet. Oh, uh, my husband is older. So uh, he's 60, he'll be 67 in December. So that co comes up a lot. Where are you guys going to retire to? And I'm like, uh, first, I'm not sure I understand the question, retire. <laughs> exactly. Please define <laughs> retirement for me. And then second, I don't know, Earth, you know, probably, yeah. although I'm holding out for moon colony. The fewer humans, the better. No, just like, I don't I'm kidding, settle. I'm kidding. Settle is not really in my vocabulary. It's like, well, we live here now, and right. then we might live somewhere else for a while. And I don't know that I'm going to pick a place and be like, this is it. It's just part of the process. So without even being asked, I've decided I'm going to pick three places and just chase the weather around the world. Here's my solution. November, yeah. December, January, February, and March in Thailand is the weather's just insane. It's so good. April, May, June, and half of July in the south of France. And the rest of the year, so whatever's left, July, August, September, and October in Japan. That's that's what I'm going to do. I mean that that sounds great, but but usually what I answer is um, I just don't see myself retiring. I'm a working dog. 
right? Yeah, I'm, I'm like the, the border collie. If you don't give me sheep, I'm going to herd the local neighbor's kids into a pack. You know, like I just, I, I can't imagine stopping doing something that has a purpose, has a plan, has a vision, and that I'm trying to cause. Well, you've been kind of doing that your whole life, right? Essentially. I mean, if I go back, if I've listened to what you've said properly, there's always been some sort of change, whether it was digital transformation or cultural transformation or some kind of change agent. Or I think the word you used was trying to catalyze a change. I mean, that's your whole life. Yes. That is, that is what I'm about, yeah. And that's awesome, actually. Are you comfortable with the fact that one Chinese cycle, 12 years, is the perfect distance between any couple's ages? <laughs> yes, we're both here of the horse. <laughs> Are you comfortable with this? As that's perfection in my mind. 12 years, perfect. <laughs> Sorry, I digress. So talk to me about white it, space. Just about everything about our, our marriage is perfect. So perfect. that just fits in. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You're probably still PowerPointing together, although that's none of my business, to be fair. Talk to me about white space. What was the idea? What is it? What does it do? What's the, what is the change it's trying to solve? Sure. White space is, it's a new category. I call it collaboration space. And okay. it's on-demand, flexible collaboration space. The idea is most people are aware that people's relationships with their offices has been changing slowly over time with all of these digital tools and the ability to work remotely. Obviously, COVID catalyzed a lot of changes, and now I find myself squarely in the middle of the work from home, work remotely debate. Are we going back to the office? What is the new normal regards working situations? And what Whitespace offers is one of the locations that I think is going to be part of the network of where we work. Regardless of where your office is, what kind of office you have, at some point you're going to have a need for an event of some kind that doesn't fit inside it. A workshop, a product launch, a new employee induction, a brainstorming session, a training session. You need space to come together with other people. And that's what White Space provides. I will release an episode actually today. And, and when people hear this, it's not today, but for you, it's today. About a company called Deskimo trying to sort of solve a similar problem in a different way. But I agree with you. I don't, well, I don't know if I agree or disagree, but my point is I don't think we're ever going back to the office in the same way. Ever. Because I don't think employees will put up with it. But I think it changes a lot of things around work and workspaces. And the idea that we'll need a place for collaboration and community gathering, I think is incontrovertible. I really do. Yeah, what the future looks like in terms of what percentage of the time we end up spending in something called the office, still up for grabs. Yeah. I'm old enough that I've been through two cycles of this. So uh, IBM was work from anywhere in 2000. Interesting. And then did away with it and started requiring people to come into the office because they found some of the downsides in terms of collaboration and sense of company culture and a lot of face-to-face -face stuff, what was missing. So they went back to, no, you have to come into the office, although uh, hot desking and flexible seating. And now, of course, I'm sure they're work from home or work from anywhere. Um, so th these things are cyclical. There's pluses and minuses to all of the solutions. But I agree that 
again, uh, COVID catalyzed a change that was already going to happen. These kind of major events don't start something new, but they do accelerate a trend that was already in the works. Yeah. And flexible working was already in the works. I was uh, an early adopter in that case. I've been, I did I didn't have an office between 2005 when I moved to China and 2015 when I joined Lenovo. I worked for a decade without an office. Right. I mean, I guess when you were going to Korea, you had a place to sit, but it wasn't yours. Per se. That's right. I was sitting in the client's offices. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. And, you know, Marissa Meyer famously, when she went to run Yahoo, canceled their work from home and work from anywhere program for a bunch of different reasons. Right. And just to corroborate what you're saying about this acceleration and catalyzation, I mean, I'm, I'm on board completely with this. There's not a lot of new stuff going on, but there's an acceleration of a trend that was already going to happen. And one of the founders of a startup company that I spoke to in India, who's he's now the chairman of that company, said he wants to ensure that something like 80% of his people don't have to come into the office. He wouldn't mind if it was 100%. But he said there's 20% of his employees who want to go to work for a bunch of different reasons. Not the least of which is just the camaraderie they get from hanging out with people they like to be with, right? At the end of the day, as much as I love the digital tools, we are social animals. We are pack animals. We get uh, benefits from spending time with each other in reality, face to face. And what Whitespace provides to our customers is that there are just things that you can't do online. Yep. You can manage things online, but you can't create new things. Um, that creativity, that spark where you're talking over each other or, or four people are not talking, but someone's scribbling on the whiteboard, it's, it just doesn't, it can't be managed with the technology that we have. And so there's just this in both from a human you know, spirit sense of wanting to spend time with other people. And also tools are great. We're having this conversation over the internet, but it would still be better if we were face to face. And if you start adding more people into the mix at certain point, it just doesn't become workable. So you need to meet face to face. And we provide that space for people to do that. My tagline in my head is white space is where you create your future. I like it. I like it a lot. How long has Whitespace been around now? So we prototyped the concept a little bit over four years ago. We formally incorporated what, what is Whitespace today three and a half years ago. Oh, wow. So what does that mean? So do you own, rent, lease? Like what's the idea around how you get your own space? And do you want one space? Do you want a space in every city in China? Like what's the idea? So we... I would say we operate the space. We're not just a booking platform where you find whatever meeting rooms. We're not the Airbnb of meeting rooms. We actually operate the space like a hotel. And in, we started with leasing the space. Now we're doing it in partnership with real estate developers using space in their buildings. In the future, maybe like the hotels, we'll just operate space that belongs to other people. But what we provide is that operations and service and tech so that what the customer is getting is not a room. What the customer is getting is their event goes well. Yeah, I mean, so this is like, like an office as a service in a way, right? In other words, if you have- It's meeting room as a service, but I don't call it meeting rooms because people think a meeting is four people around a round table. Right, right, right. And what our rooms look like are 
20 people around a U-shaped table having a brainstorming or a sales review meeting or no tables and stands along the sides and they're doing a product launch or uh, auditorium style seating and they're doing a big uh, training course. Could be any of those things. Yeah. So my vision for kind of like the future of downtown and office space, and I'm curious what you think about this because you're doing this every day, is that if work is going to be more flexible, and I think employees definitely want it to be, but again, I think everything's sort of a hybrid, it's going to mean that there's a lot of office space that's already out there that needs to be repurposed and that rents in sort of central business districts will change because the demand is going to be, I used to say less, but now I think it's just going to be different, right? It's going to be more variable. But do you see a lot of those spaces now being repurposed to do things like what you're doing and maybe what like Deskimo is doing in Singapore, where they are these managed spaces, right? Because you don't just want to show up to an empty room that has right. nobody there to help you with like even just coffee. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't right. want to go to or how do room. I connect to the internet or how do I turn the projector on or all of those things you need if you're, if you're running a big group event. Yeah, because if you were in like a real, if you were in your office, if you were at the Goldman Sachs offices in Tokyo and you went into a meeting room that you'd booked and again, if there are 25 people in there, if there's any issue, you just call facilities or something. Right. 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 And we're providing that service on demand when you use Whitespace. So all of our locations are staffed. 100%. If there's a customer there, there's a front desk staff there to help you with any of those things. And is there a sort of a technology angle here so that the things, all the bookings and stuff like that is seamless? That's the vision. I'll, I'll say, you know, like any entrepreneur, what we have and what I want there to be are not quite the same thing. <laughs> I'm also, you know, and, in, and, and this is a valid thing in entrepreneurship where we started with minimum viable product. You know, you start with the very basics that some people can accept, right. uh, and then you get feedback from the market because what I think the Chinese market needs is not necessarily right. Um, so we let our customers tell us what's important. For example, we built uh, an online booking system where through WeChat, which is the, yep. the WhatsApp of China, um, you could search all the locations, select your room, book it, and pay. And in fact, none of our customers want to use that. They want to call and talk to a person. I love it. And I'm not unhappy about that because, first of all, I developed minimum viable product. I spent an incredibly small amount of money in developing that system to offer the minimum functionality that would allow me to, to launch it. Second of all, by designing it, we learned a lot. Yeah. By launching it, we learned even more about what they're looking for and what they're not looking for. And eventually we will implement a more sophisticated system and put in other functions around it and like encourage our customers to start using that. But you listen to the market. What the customers want is to talk to a salesperson who guides them through arranging the room and arranging the event the way that they want it. That reassurance of we got you. Right. And often the people who are arranging the events are not professional events organizers. They're the training assistant right. or the boss's secretary who's been told, book a room for this event, and he or she doesn't know what they don't know. Right. And so we are there to provide customer support to make sure that what they get is what they need for that event to be successful. Yeah, I honestly believe. So there's a big fear out there, right, that humans are going to get automated out of every single job. 
And I think there are plenty of jobs where humans will be automated out of those responsibilities. But these types of roles, I don't think anybody wants to deal with a chatbot. They want to talk to another person because it, it makes them feel safer. So if I show yes. up at 9.05, am I still going to be okay is not something you can ask a chatbot. Because they can't feel the way you feel. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And this is... This is a real, the reason I emphasize we operate spaces and, and white space is going to become a brand uh, across all of Asia. That's the vision. And part of the, the value of that brand is going to be that trust of if you go to white space, it's going to be okay. It's going to work out. And that's really important for a group event because if you fail, if you pick the wrong place, if you pick a location that turns out the lobby is really dirty and embarrassing or there's no one there to help you with all those technical aspects, that failure is public. 30 people in that event knows that you picked the wrong place. Yeah, but also you didn't get your job done either. In other words, the only reason why you're right. having a meeting with 30 people in it is so you can make a decision or create a vision or you know, right. achieve something. Right. And you if, wasted that time. You wasted that opportunity. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And rule number one for me is don't ever waste anybody else's time because it's the only thing you can't get back. So for all of those reasons, I'm committed to, uh, it's an offline business, uh, at least in terms of the product we deliver is for people to meet in person or, or possibly blended. We get a lot of demand now for blended, hybrid, online, offline meetings. We have some fantastic tech set up so that you can have 30 people in a room and an unlimited number of offline, or sorry, online participants. And it feels like a live event. Um, but it is about creating, unleashing the creativity and possibility of people meeting together. What I really want, so I've got this gigantic whiteboard. Periodically, you see me looking to the left. I've got a whiteboard with a whole bunch of things on it. And if you were sitting in this room, I would probably be standing right now, right? <laughs> and writing on it. And I've seen some interesting technology, but I've used Miro boards, which I think are terrible and kind of useless. And what I'd love to have is a real, because you're right, those, that meeting that you have at Whitespace with 30 people in it is inevitably going to have somebody in London and in New York, who just can't make the flight, right? But they need to be part of the meeting. So as I said earlier, all these solutions are going to have to be hybrid. It's not going to be all tech. It's not going to be all online. And it's not going to be all offline because then you're not using all of sort of the tools at your disposal. But I do think writing stuff out on a whiteboard is just super powerful. And if everybody can see it, like there's got to be all these multiple cameras and stuff like that so that people that are not in the room can see it, but can also change it. And that has to be possible. If I achieve the vision, if what white space means is enabling people to come together and create, I'm not going to die on this hill that it has to be in person. Uh, 50 years from now, when virtual reality tech is so much better, maybe we're an entirely virtual reality tech company. But the, the value of what we bring is that still going to be the same. Bringing people together so they can create. Yeah, I mean, I just think humans have a visceral connection to other humans, not to uh, digital technology, but just my opinion. Okay, I think I've taken up way too much of your time today, Barbara. I really appreciate it. <laughs> oh, no, I could keep talking for hours. <laughs> so could I. <laughs> it's a problem for you, not a problem for me. In other words, I don't want to keep you too long. I really appreciate you coming on and doing this. Barbara X, the founder and CEO of Widespace. Just amazing stories and incredible experiences. I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you for inviting me. I've really enjoyed talking about it. <laughs>